Hello, podcast listeners. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslug. Today is Monday, October 10th, 2022. Welcome to the NK News podcast. And joining me via Zoom today are three members of the NK News and NK Pro team to discuss some of the recent stories out of and about North Korea. But please, before we begin, I'd like to remind all of you, leave a review about this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use. And please share this podcast with colleagues and friends and even enemies. And on Spotify, you can leave a rating but no reviews, but please do that anyway. Uh, and if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can please click like and subscribe. Second, check out nknews.org where you can find all of the in-depth stories written by the excellent journalists that I'll be talking to today. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's much more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, that's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out each and every day. And third, you can follow all of us on Twitter. You can find each of our handles in the show notes, and nknews.org is the general one for the whole platform. Now, to introduce our three guests today, we have my colleagues Ethan Jewell, Ifang Bremer, and James Fretwell. Yes, it's an all-male roundtable, but not by design. We hope to return to a more gender-diverse roundtable next month. Welcome on the show this morning, men. Thank you very much. Thanks, Becca. Good morning. Okay, James, let's talk about missiles. There's been rather a lot of them. Uh, North Korea is once more launching objects into the sea, ballistic missiles, short-range missiles, etc. Give us the breakdown. What have they been launching and where from? Oh, to give you the breakdown, I mean, how much time do we have, Jacko? There have been quite a few missile launches um, since the end of September, mostly short-range ballistic missiles, which put um, particularly South Korea in immediate danger. The really big news, the one that uh, really captivated international headlines was, of course, the um, intermediate range ballistic missile on um, October the 4th that flew over Japan. That was the first time that a missile had flown over Japan in um, five years. So that was a that was a really big deal. I just said it was an intermediate range uh, ballistic missile. Yes. Yeah, the obviously that um, really panicked a lot of people in Japan. Um, there were the jailer system went off. Um, I think this really, you know, this this kind of this really upped the ante that missile test, and uh, maybe North Korea is is building up to something even bigger in, in the immediate future. Let me ask a question about that missile that flew over Japan. How high did it fly? I mean, could Japanese people see it from the ground with the naked eye? Was Japan uh, in any real actual danger? Well, so the missile flew higher than the International Space Station. Ah. Uh, that's an interesting thing to point out. And it, I mean, it, it panics a lot of people in Japan because when these missiles fly over Japan, the J Alert warning system yeah. uh, sends out warnings to everyone in, in the region over loudspeakers, on national TV, etc. And in, in a lot of these rural areas in Japan, a lot of houses are made of wood, mm. actually. And so there are a few safe places to hide. Actually, possibly the uh, an, another uh, very worrying thing. I mean, it's worrying to uh, get a missile alert, of course, but it's, it's perhaps even more worrying to have the missile be launched and then hear about the events afterwards. The J-Alert system failed in, uh, in six areas um, mm. in Japan. 
So obviously that's going to um, make people uh, concerned that is, is Japan, uh, is the government capable of protecting us? Here's a, a technical question for you. If the missile flew higher than the International Space Station, that, that, that means it left the Earth's atmosphere, am I correct? I think, uh, oh God, <laughs> you I mean, give, put me up there about technicality. My, my very basic understanding of the International Space Station is it's in outer space, so therefore well, it must be outside the yeah. atmosphere, therefore the yeah. missile flew above that. Does that mean it's actually not in Japanese airspace if it's outside the atmosphere? Is this more, uh, a, I, you know, if, and if that's the case, I'm just wondering, thinking aloud here, whether that's, uh, you know, whether Japan was in any real danger or whether this is more a case of bad manners and North Korea flying a missile over a country without telling somebody first. I mean, you could maybe argue that, I suppose, if you think about it, because of where North Korea uh, is located in the world, if it is going to test missiles, which the international community prohibits. But anyway, let's, uh, you know, brush aside that minor concern, shall we? I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Um, you know, aside from, aside from that point, uh, if North Korea is going to test a uh, missile over a longer range, um, it has to go over somewhere. You know, it's, it's either going to go over South Korea, it's either going to go over China or Russia, which, you know, it's not going to do. And um, so the other option is Japan. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so how many uh, missiles have been launched this year so far? What's the count? Uh, and, and what are the different types? Oh, God, I mean, we've we've had absolutely everything this year, short, medium, long range, um, failed missile tests, remember? Yeah. Um, I think including failed missile tests, um, I, I think it's around something like 20 to 25 missile events. That's yeah. what that's how we're phrasing them missile oh. events because obviously in in one launch you might launch yep. two four eight missiles so something mm -hmm. like 20 to 25 uh missile events the the really the, the the biggest ones i think um wants to really take note of from this year in particular i think was the uh march icbm which there was a little bit of confusion over that because north korea reported this this success of the Hwasong 17 it's really you know monster this huge mm. mo uh, road mobile uh, liquid fueled missile it's claimed that it's tested it successfully but actually um i believe it was collins worko our reporter at nk news that pointed out that um maybe that test actually failed and that north korea was trying to cover that up for, for propaganda purposes but anyway i mean every test provides north korea with valuable data that it can then go on to um improve its missiles in the future the other um really important one uh, was in april and that was a short-range uh, tactical missile yeah. and lots of uh, experts are saying that perhaps uh, this this nuclear test that north korea appears to be preparing for uh, might be for a smaller nuclear warhead, a more compact nuclear warhead to put on this missile. Yeah. And if North Korea can master this technology to um, get tactical missiles, then it has the capability 
supposedly to hit the continental United States with either it's, uh, you know, Hwasong 15 or 17 uh, ICBMs, and then also fire shorter range tactical nuclear warheads at South Korea as well. Now, uh, North Korea, of course, when it has these missile events, it uh, launches them from different sites located around the country. They're not all from the same place. Roughly how many missile sites have been active this year? I mean, that's another really great question. I don't have the exact number, but it is important to note that they've been firing them, you know, from the from the west of the country, from the east of the country, absolutely everywhere. And this is important because if the US, South Korea and Japan decide to, uh, you know, take out some of these missile sites, well, if there's, if there's only a few, then they're uh, easier to take out, right? Um, if Korea can fire them from all around the country, then um, that gives it stronger deterrence, basically. It's saying that even if you take out one, two, three, four, uh, you know, however many of our missile sites, are you sure that you're going to get them all? Maybe not. And, uh, you know, we're going to prove that we can fire these missiles from all around the country. There was a really interesting test, I think, in June where North Korea fired um, eight missiles from four different launch sites across the country and that was all you know we consider that one uh, missile event but again it's just showing that you know the kim kim jong-un is saying if we wanted to we could fire off all these missiles from different sites around the country and uh you know falls in your course let's bring in uh ifang ifang I, I believe that there's some photographs that have been uh, released in the last 24 hours of the most recent launch event, is that correct? Yeah, so this morning we finally got to see uh, pictures of these launch events, recent launch events, because, you know, we, we've seen all these missiles going up in the air. I mean, we, we know about them. We haven't actually seen them, right, last week, which made us all curious. Is there no domestic propaganda purpose at all going on? Well, apparently there is, because this morning in the Nodong Shimun, uh, finally, we got to see uh, Kim Jong-un overseeing uh, all these tests uh, the past week. So, um, yeah. Ah, so he was physically still... present at the launches, was he? Yeah, it seems so. Uh, at least for several of the launches, he was physically present. And um, now that we have the images of these launches, experts can uh, analyze them and see, you know, which missiles actually went up in the air. So, yeah, right. um, that will be... I guess for uh, today or later this week. Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. Okay. I'd also add on to that. So, I mean, of course, it's really great for the analysts whenever North Korea publishes pictures of these missiles because you do get to have a closer look, um, you know, the more technical details and really understand why a particular missile is is uh, uniquely threatening as opposed to, you know, of course, it's, it's a missile, all missiles are threats. But the other thing to note is that, um, you know, North Korea kind of over the, the, the last um, year or so, it's done a lot of missile tests, but it didn't always publicize them. And that kind of gave rise to people thinking that, oh, perhaps there's, um, you know, North Korea isn't trying to send a message to the world as such as it's more trying to make these tests a, a regular thing, you know, instead of building them up as this huge event if it tests missiles without publicizing them then it's, it's kind of saying well if south korea and the us is going to test and develop missiles 
you know, kind of casually, then, then we're also going to do that as well. Um, when North Korea puts them in state media, you know, it's, it's obviously you can't look into the mind of, of Kim Jong-un and, and tell uh, perhaps exactly what kind of messaging he's, he's trying to send. Um, but, you know, the message to the outside world um, is going to receive is, is quite clear. International media is going to um, republish all of these photos yeah. and, uh, you, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause alarm about what's happening on the Korean Peninsula. Okay, so in the last week, um, how many missile events have we had in the last week? Oh, goodness me. Okay, well, well since the beginning week, of October then, three, in the last 10 days. I think three or four, I think, since October. Because that does feel like it's hard to say that that by bunching them up together like North Korea has done, that it's not uh, trying to do this for some outside messaging purposes. Look, there are there are lots of reasons why North Korea could be testing missiles. Obviously, the um, the main reason that you would test and develop a missile is to have an effective weapon that's yeah. the that's the ultimate objective um but you know after that does north korea publicize it does it not publicize it um you know always bearing in mind that the tests are primarily to improve its weapons capabilities mm-hmm. um i think it's also important to consider um how north korea is portraying these launches to its domestic audience and also to the outside world as well. Okay, how are South Korea, Japan and the United States responding? So, you know, since Yoon Song-yeol, the South Korean president um, came to power, he's he's come out with these, um, you know, initiatives to achieve North Korean denuclearization, I suppose, right? We had the audacious plan which was basically South Korea will will put in economic investments if North Korea gives up its its nuclear weapons. Um, South Korea is also, you know, saying it's going to be much tougher than the Moon Jae-in the previous administration was on 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 sanctions and and uh, all of this stuff. And we can see that with with the recent missile launches. I think another part of um, South Korea's policy towards North Korea, Yoon's policy towards North Korea is really strengthening uh, the alliance with the US and also um, bolstering military cooperation with Japan. You've had a lot of meetings and military drills that haven't happened for five years, actually, in a lot of cases in response to these North Korean missile launches. I think this sends a, a powerful message that you know north korea you're you're not going to uh you know no matter how much you improve your weapons capabilities here's what we've got we've got an alliance with the the world's military superpower at the end of the day if you try something it's not going to work out well for you um so i think that we'll see a lot more of this um you know improving military south korea's military capabilities um and strengthening its ties with the US and Japan going forward. And with Japan, that's interesting. Uh, let's, we've got to keep an eye on that. Uh, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, Ifung, let's talk to you about a story that you published on October 7th. Oh, hang on, wait, before we go on, I just, uh, speaking of dates, I'm reminded that today being October 10th, this is the Workers' Party of Korea Foundation Day, the ruling party of, uh, of North Korea, the KWP. Uh, could we be expecting to see some kind of 
spectacular event today. Anyone could feel free to jump in here. Ethan, Ethan, James, who's got some ideas about what may what we may be expecting in the media today? It's a tough one. Um, in 2020, there was, of course, a huge military parade. North Korea normally uh, does big military parades to mark five and 10 year anniversaries. So that was why that particular um, celebration for the founding anniversary of the um, Workers' Party of Korea. That's why that was such a, a big deal. But actually last year as well, you didn't get a, uh, a military parade, but you did kind of get the next best thing, which was this huge uh, weapons expo. And that provided analysts with a lot of uh, extra images of a, a good chunk of North Korea's weapons arsenal. So, you know, who, who knows? Maybe we'll um, maybe we'll get something related to that. Right. It was founded, of course, on October the tenth, nineteen forty-five. Just a little bit less than two months after the defeat of uh, of Japan in World War Two. Uh, so yes, uh, twenty twenty would have been a, a big year, but twenty twenty two probably not such a big one. So maybe maybe nothing will happen. We'll uh, we'll see. We'll find out uh, in due course. All right, Ifung, let's turn to you now and uh, talk about a story that you published three days ago, titled "Seoul NGO Suspected of Illegally Importing North Korean Art Under Investigation." So, which non governmental organization is suspected of illegally importing North Korean art? Yeah, so this this NGO uh, is called the Asia Pacific Exchange Association. It's based in Seoul, and its 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 usual activities are um, returning the remains of victims of colonial forced labor from Japan. So that's <laughs> not necessarily North Korea related, but yeah, uh, yeah um, the NGO's director. Uh, also has a strong interest in inter-Korean uh, cooperation projects, it seems. Right. Uh, now, that's the, uh, the name again there is the Asia Pacific. I think it's the the acronym is APIA. So uh, maybe... Yeah, I'm not sure why. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and so they're, they're normally bringing home Korean remains, for example, Koreans who were mobilized during World War II to fight on, uh, on Japan-controlled islands or territories. Uh, to bring back those bodies to South Korea. That's their, their, their stated sort of main objective. Is that right? That's right. But um, in 2018 and 2019, uh, this NGO also co-organized um, inter-Korean uh, peace events yep. together with Gyeonggi province, the uh, most populous province here in mm -hmm. South Korea. Yeah, so it, it definitely has a range of activities that uh, it focuses right. on. Yeah. Okay, and why is it illegal to import North Korean art? Well, there's this thing called the Inter-Korean uh, Exchange and Cooperation Act, uh, which prohibits importing North Korean uh, materials without approval of the um, South Korea's Ministry of Unification first, uh, because, you know, buying things from North Korea is often uh, covered by sanctions, international sanctions, domestic sanctions. So you cannot just you know, buy an, a North Korean painting when you're when you're in South Korea. You really need to go through a very uh, rigorous administrative pr process before you can actually get a painting here. Yeah. yeah. And and these paintings, are these the kinds of uh, North Korean propaganda paintings that we often see in the media, you know, uh, smashing 
the U.S. White House or uh, killing American soldiers or uh, standing up for communism? Is that the kind of paintings we're talking about? Uh, no, definitely not, because these paintings were actually displayed at these inter-Korean events. We're talking about dozens of, of paintings. Yeah. So then obviously you, you will not expect those kind of things, but uh, more like, uh, you know, the natural beauty of the Korean peninsula, mm -hmm. um, those, those kind of things, the kind of more neutral topics that still can serve some kind of propaganda purpose, because as some analysts say, all art in North Korea is essentially political, mm. um, but not all Kim art Jong Il is... said that too, by the way. <laughs> There's no art right, for art's sake in, in the DPRK. Yeah. So, um, but definitely not the, the, you won't see airplanes uh, bombing uh, right. uh, the US or something on these, these, these paintings. But what's interesting is that these paintings, after these events, they just disappeared. Um, the Ministry of Unification only approved the import of three paintings. Mm. But now, two years later, um, after these paintings were last seen, uh, South Korean broadcaster um, JTBC. Yep, JTBC. Right, uh, that's one of the cable news channel. That's right. They, they saw some uh, suspicious activity near the um, office of this NGO, and they, they saw what, what looked like paintings being put in the back of a car right. uh, and that's how basically these paintings suddenly uh, reappear yeah. okay so it, it looks like apia hasn't been selling them it's just been storing them right yeah it seems like it mm. um and this might be related to uh, the ngo's director's plan which he had in 2018 mm -hmm. um, he wanted to set up a blockchain-based north korean art auction system <laughs> wow but it 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 doesn't seem his his efforts uh have been successful um obviously after 2018 after 2019 um relationships between north and south have not yeah. uh become better so it seems that uh yeah his efforts stalled have these paintings now been confiscated by the south korean government oh, from my understanding they have not so basically the the police stopped uh, a car with mm -hmm. the director present and they saw a couple of the paintings in the back of the car yeah. uh, they didn't confiscate them just yet uh, but they started an investigation which they now uh, transferred to the uh, south korea customs agency right um yeah because so surely the, we... the, the the allegation of illegally bringing things in from north korea so it's going to be handled by the customs police. exactly yeah right. and and i understand that somehow there's an allegation of bribery involving a a high-level politician, in fact, a former deputy governor of Chungi province. What's going on there? Well, to make things more complicated, this uh, NGO shares its offices with the Sangbangu Group, a South Korean conglomerate currently making headlines for alleged uh, stock price manipulation involving business dealings with North Korea mm. back in 2019. Yeah, it's 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 getting complicated, but uh, corporate records show that the NGO's director was appointed uh, CEO of a subsidiary uh, of this group when this conglomerate allegedly started bribing a uh, high-ranking Gyeonggi official yeah. to broker a business deal with North Korea. So there seems to be a bigger story going on on the mm. back. Uh, Do you know any more about the brokering of a business deal with North Korea? Is this the, the blockchain art auction that you were talking about or is that something else? No, it's not. So according to South Korean media reports, South Korean prosecutors are now investigating 
uh, that Yi Hwayong, who was the deputy governor yeah. of Gyeonggi province, received hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bribes wow. from this South Korean conglomerate in the form of uh, corporate credit card spendings, use of uh, luxury vehicles, yeah. and in exchange, Lee allegedly helped to arrange a business deal with North Korean organizations uh, for the exclusive trading rights to rare earth materials. Um, ah, rare earths, okay. Yeah, yeah. And after that, stock price soared of this uh, particular South Korean company. Yeah. Um, but I think what this really shows is, you know, how far we are from that era, uh, yeah. 2018, 2019, when yeah. people had all these wild plans of, you know, setting up you know, business opportunities mm-hmm. with North Korea. And now, yeah, it's all obviously fallen apart and mm. people are actually being prosecuted for the things they've done uh, during those years. Did you try to interview the head of the APIA? He sounds like an interesting character. Uh, yeah, we obviously tried to reach out um, to give them a chance to respond. But uh, yeah, no one was available for comment, unfortunately. Okay, well, we do hope that they come out and tell their story at some point. Uh, thanks very much, Ifan. Ethan, moving on to you. Uh, rather than staring off into space, you've been staring back from space, specifically looking back down at Korean, North Korean crops and at NK Pro, that's the uh, uh, premium product of NK News. You have a story about crop health in North Korea. What have you seen? Yeah, Jaco. So what we've seen essentially is that the health or the median health of North Korean crops over the past few years has not really improved. And in fact, it's actually declined slightly. Um, So when we say the health of crops has declined, Mm. uh, what I'm referring to uh, is this index called EVI or uh, Enhanced Vegetation Index. And it's sort of a like technical term, but basically what it is, is if you take uh, satellite imagery, optical satellite imagery, like you'll see from our our colleague, uh, Colin Zwerko all the time, Mm -hmm. and you you essentially run some computations on the data that make up those images, and it can actually reveal information that is not as apparent. So for instance, you can run some calculations on optical satellite imagery and come out with a value that shows, uh, essentially it's a proxy of how much light is being reflected by healthy vegetation. And so the idea is that the greener a plant is, the healthier it is. And this particular practice or uh, method has been used for quite some time now, ever since satellite imagery became widely available, Mm. um, not just for studying countries at large, but even for studying crop health um, at a smaller scale. So it's actually not uncommon for uh, farmers to use this particular index to measure the health of their own crops mm. and plot that over time. So I essentially repeated this same process for North Korea um, using some satellite imagery from uh, the Terra Modis uh, satellite, which is run by NASA. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we came out with uh, some set of measurements, which you can see at NK Pro. Yes, that's right, Aaron. NK Pro subscribers can look at the actual maps that you've prepared there uh, uh, and uh, some uh, some graphs as well uh, to accompany the story. What is land cover mask? Because I was a bit confused by that term there. Sure. So the the main problem with this type of data is uh, whenever the, sat- the satellite makes measurements of the entire Earth's surface, it doesn't just measure portions of the Earth's surface that are 
filled with crops. Right. So in other words, if we were to just scan all of North Korea and then calculate the enhanced vegetation index for the entire country, yeah. it would be skewed by, say, forests, mm. uh, just plains and other things that are not actually representative of you know, human human uh, agriculture. So to solve this, uh, some people much smarter than than I came up with this thing called a land cover mask, yeah. which is essentially a very complicated uh, algorithm that can look at uh, the entire Earth's surface and say, okay, this pixel right here, this we're going to consider croplands. Okay. This one right here, this is water, and this right here, this is you know desert. Yeah. So this type of mask is generated well it's called a mask because what we can do is essentially apply it to uh the unfiltered image of north korea and mask away everything that is not croplands uh so when we say land cover mask what we're essentially saying is filter out everything that's not crops right. now let's take the measurement of evi and the hope is that this gives us a more accurate measurement of what's actually happening now how is that uh that uh, crop health changing over time? Is it uh, remaining stable? Is it going backwards uh, in North Korea? Well, if you, so if you check out the uh, the charts that we have over on NK Pro, you can see uh, essentially what you would expect, which is that as the growing season goes on, uh, particularly around uh, May, June, and July, uh, you'll see a rapid increase in what we consider to be healthy levels of EVI. Mm. Uh, and so you'll see that these uh, that these have a very clear seasonal pattern to them. That being said, uh, that doesn't really tell us a whole lot. So instead, what we can do is uh, plot a distribution of the particular EVI values over time, over several years, and say, okay, uh, in you know in 2019, yeah. uh, in the the median. Uh, or the most occurring, the, the value that occurs the most uh, for crop health is X. And then in, in the next year, mm -hmm. it's say 0.5% or 1% lower. Um, and so we, if we track it that way, we can actually uh, get a better idea of the general trend of crop health over time. Uh, and the reason that that's important is because EVI might be a good tool for studying uh, general crop health yeah. But the particular varieties of, say, corn, rice, and barley that are grown in North Korea do not necessarily reflect light in the exact same way as those grown, say, in the United States mm -hmm. or India or China. Um, so it's important that we look at the longer overall trends um, to actually get a better idea of what's That's going very on. Interesting. How far back does the data go for North Korea? I believe for this particular data set, it goes back to 2002. Okay. Uh, for for the NK Pro article, um, we only went back to 2019 just to not overload uh, the reader. Um, right. That be and and the other the other issue is that there's actually a technical um, limitation here, which is that this data takes up a lot of space, wow. um, and the program we put together to process it actually takes quite a bit of time just yeah. to go through it. Um, so yeah, we only have a few years back, um, but it can certainly be used to look at. Uh, even larger, more uh, historical trends. Wow, that's a, a great resource uh, for researchers looking at, at agriculture. Uh, just more broadly, Ethan, why is food security such an issue in North Korea? Right. Well, this is always uh, this has been an issue in the country for several decades at this mm. point. Speaking with a few experts for that story, um, the, the main reasons that come up are, are one, 
uh, incentives, which is just that uh, there's just not a lot of incentives for uh, farmers to produce bumper crops, yeah. because if a certain portion of your harvest is going to be seized by the state and put into public distribution systems that have been broken down for decades now, there, and you can't sell your surplus legally, at least on the open market, uh, then there's just no, there's just very little reason to put in the extra time, put in the extra work and investment to produce excess harvests. Um, another reason would be poor land and water management. We've seen this be a problem in the North for quite some time. Uh, agricultural practices have not exactly been as scientific as in other places. Um, and so you might not have proper crop rotations to make sure that the soil remains in good health, et cetera. And there's a whole bunch of other reasons as well. Um, every every year around the harvest, we hear stories about uh, theft, even uh, not just, yes, not just of other people's crops, but essentially theft from the state, which is farmers will harvest, will take a portion of their harvest and attempt to hide it from authorities so that they can make a profit um, on the open market. Um, and so there's, there's many ways that uh, food security has become such an issue there. And looking at the, uh, the entire country, are there areas that are more affected than others uh, by this, by these problems? Well, the main areas that are going to be affected by these problems is, is going to be the areas that uh, are the breadbaskets anyway. So that would mm. be the four coastal provinces on the west, um, because these produce almost 100 percent of the country's uh, food crops. So if you go more out to the east, it's very mountainous country, very cold. Um, soil is not very uh, suitable for farming. And so you're going to have most of these issues on the West Coast, essentially. Right. Gosh. Um, now, is North Korea, I mean, it, it sounds like a, a basic question, but North Korea is not self-sufficient in terms of food, is it? No. And I mean, that uh, this is apparent if you just look at, say, uh, trade data. Um, I mean, every, every year we've seen uh, this data is publicly available since 2017, but you'll see uh, several million dollars worth of different foodstuffs going into the north from uh, China. Uh, that has decreased recently because of COVID-19 border restrictions. Yeah. Uh, but North Korea is not food self-sufficient in much the same way that, that many countries, um, even in the West, are not food self-sufficient just because they may not necessarily, uh, it might not be make economic sense to, mm. uh, to contribute, to, to basically put in all of the capital, you might have a competitive advantage in, say, producing semiconductors as yeah. um, as South Korea does or Taiwan does, then it makes sense to uh, to grow a large uh, number of crops. Um, so no, North Korea is, is not definitely not self uh, food self-sufficient. Um, and this is clear also from the fact that basically every every year for as many years as I can remember, yeah. the World Food Program and other aid organizations have uh, basically sounded the alarm that much of the, the population is is malnourished. In the best of all possible worlds, could North Korea ever hope to be food self-sufficient with an ideal harvest and climate conditions? Yeah, I mean, I don't see a reason why not necessarily. Uh, there's plenty of croplands along the West. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a farmer myself, um, but the country does put a lot of emphasis on scientific farming methods and, and improving agricultural practices, and that's all great. Um, but it's going to take uh, larger stores of fertilizer, a little bit less control, not a little bit less control, much less control from the state 
to allow farmers, to incentivize farmers to actually produce more. Um, and if if all that goes well, I think it is possible that the country could become even closer to food self-sufficient mm. or at least have enough to, to properly feed uh, its population. Okay, well, that's important. Yeah. Uh, so, Ethan, does that mean that under the current uh, international sanctions that North Korea could only hope to have enough food to feed its population by receiving food aid from international donors, given that it really can't buy much at the moment? Well, no, sanctions against the country do not prohibit it from importing uh, food. Um, so that's that's not necessarily the problem here. I mm. think most of it just has to do with, again, the incent the lack of incentives for farmers to, pr to produce excess harvests. So there's, there's not as big of a problem there with, say, you know, UN sanctions are inhibiting the North's ability to import food. Um, a lot of it is unfortunately just mismanagement by the state um, rather than outside influences. Now, that being said, there is there is a case to be made for uh, the country having uh, natural disasters that actually wipe out a certain percentage of its harvests. And that's not I mean, that's not really um, anyone's fault in particular, mm -hmm. per se. So um, it's not uncommon for it hasn't been uncommon in the past for floods to wipe out large portions of croplands. Yeah. Um, and I believe that that's one of the main reasons that the the famine happened in the 90s is because of some major flooding. So I, I don't think that I don't think that sanctions are really impacting the uh, the quantity of food in the country. I think that it's it's mostly a fault of the leadership, unfortunately. Right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Ethan. That's an important story and certainly one that uh, will be studied. Uh, every year, every time there's a harvest. Um, James, moving back to you, since we last spoke, there's been the big annual meeting at the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, US President Biden gave a speech in which he mentioned North Korea briefly, and South Korean President Yoon also made a speech but did not mention North Korea. Uh, what was said about North Korea at the General Assembly? Yeah, as you said, not much, which is really shocking um, when you consider that um, you know, when when Trump was president, we we had all that uh, you know rocket man stuff. Uh, Moon Jae-in last year, he was he was pushing his end of war declaration with North Korea, and then this year, you know, not not it's it's kind of fallen off the radar to to some extent. Of course, mm. there are huge things going on in the world right now outside of the Korean peninsula, like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, for example. But that doesn't mean North Korea is staying quiet. In fact, you know, as we said earlier, it's, it's conducting a lot of missile launches. It's really improving its missile capabilities. It's probably even more of a threat to countries in the region than ever before. Gosh, uh, did the uh, the ambassador from North Korea himself also give a speech at the United Nations General Assembly? He did indeed. Um, and of course, that was um, mainly focused on um, things to do with the US and South Korea. I, I think the, the interesting thing that he um, touched on was about North Korea's new nuclear law that was adopted um, at the beginning of last month. And I'm mm -hmm. sure listeners have heard all about that. And it, basically, it, it kind of um, expands the um, number of circumstances in which North Korea will nu use nuclear weapons. And um, yeah, the, the North Korean ambassador 
kind of said that this is our sovereign decision. You don't have a right to dispute this. Um, and also we're, we're, um, we're not interested in dealing with South Korea. Mm. Okay, still not interested in talking. Uh, while in New York for the, uh, the big meeting there, President Yoon Suk-yeol met briefly with President Joe Biden and also with uh, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida. What did he talk about with them? I think more than the the contents of what they talked about, um, it, it, there was a, the, the, the meetings themselves, how they took place. I think that's of more interest. They did discuss North Korea, um, mm -hmm. uh, apparently. Um, but uh, Yoon and Biden, it, it appeared that um, South Korea really built up that there was going to be this uh, big meeting with the US president, um, and it didn't happen. And I think that was quite embarrassing for Seoul. They mm. kind of met briefly on a few occasions during the um, their trip to London for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, they had a 48-second meeting uh, in New York. That was a but very specific counting? length, right? just a brief interaction. That was with, with Biden. Um, so not really much interaction between the U.S. and the South Korean presidents, more of a, uh, a longer meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister Kishida. And uh, that was more uh, important because South Korea-Japan relations have really suffered mm. over the last few years. And uh, the UN administration has really made this big effort to reach out to Japan to improve relations um, and that's good news for Washington because it wants its allies that have these deep-rooted historical uh, disputes between each other. They want them to kind of overcome that and work together to cooperate on, um, you know, issues like like uh, China and North Korea. Mm -hmm. Now, about about a week later, uh, the U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris visited South Korea and made a customary trip to the demilitarized zone and the joint security area. What did she see and, and what happened? Um, so, yeah, uh, Harris went to the demilitarized zone. Um, around that time, there were also military exercises, um, uh, naval military exercises with uh, the, the US. Um, that was the first, uh, those were the first exercises, uh, joint exercises involving an American aircraft carrier since 2017 uh, around the Korean Peninsula. So you know when when um, when U.S. top U.S. officials go to the DMZ, it is it is quite um, symbolic. Again, it's it's showing that the the alliance is strong and that we're not going to abandon South Korea in mm. the face of all these North Korean uh, missile launches. Right, and that's uh, uh, was that in the talks with uh, between vice president harris and president yun is that what is that what they talked about largely um there were lots of things they talked about um other issues as well like the inflation reduction acts oh. and uh you know all, all of all of that stuff but they um yeah they they discussed um north korea uh briefly touched on uh the uh peace and stability in the in the taiwan strait apparently um, this was definitely a longer meeting than um, the, the, the the smattering of, of interactions that Yoon and Biden had over a few days in, in London and New York. It also marks a big difference between when um, Nancy Pelosi, mm. US House Speaker, 
um, visited recently and, and South Korea kind of appeared to ignore Pelosi. Um, so at least this time there was a face-to-face -face meeting yeah. between Yoon and the visiting uh, top US official. Indeed. Okay, thank you, James. Uh, moving on to a story that both Yifang and Ethan have written together, but Yifang, you're the one who has uh, flagged it for discussion, so I'll, uh, I'll ask you. Uh, anyone who has watched the news in the last week or two will be aware that Vladimir Putin moved to formally annex four <laughs> regions in southern and eastern Ukraine to Russia. Uh, and now Koreans, many Koreans, I think, would look upon this and see parallels of 1910 in Korean history when Japan annexed all of the Korean peninsula to itself, making it the colony of Chosen. Uh, North Korea, which condemns those Korean individuals who 112 years ago facilitated and went along with Japan's annexation of Korea, has surprised some by supporting this particular annexation. How did it show its support, Ifan? Well, it's been showing its support for Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine uh, for months now, but notably recently, uh, Foreign Ministry of North Korea released a statement saying that we will respect the will of the residents who aspired toward the integration into Russia. Uh, and they're referring wow. to the residents of those breakaway regions and support Russian government's statement uh, of making the regions the composition of Russia. So this is uh, per the foreign ministry of North Korea. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, it's legitimizing the uh, the referendums that uh, that Russia ran in these occupied zones that has largely been called illegitimate by most of the world. That's right. And already uh, some months ago, North Korea was one of the very few countries in the world to actually uh, recognize these breakaway uh, regions, Luhansk and Donetsk. Yeah. So, yeah, this is just a follow-up of that. Right. Okay. So is this support likely to mean a lot to Russia at this time? Well, I think at this point for Russia, any support is welcome. <laughs> um, I think we should definitely see it in that light. Yeah. I, I really wonder why uh, North Korea is doing this. Again, I, I mentioned the historical context there. Is it here because North Korea is actually supporting on principle, a stronger, larger country annexing a smaller, weaker one, or is it uh, something a bit more opportunistic? Does North Korea see something to be gained by doing this? Oh, I think it's definitely uh, the latter, right? Like, uh, this is purely opp opportunistic uh, from what it seems. Uh, hmm. you, we, for, uh, we saw uh, Pyongyang's ambassador to Moscow, Xinong yeah. uh, Chol, in August, saying there's great potential in the trade and economic direction in the field of labor migration. Mm -hmm. And he said that in regards to uh, recognizing these two uh, breakaway regions, Lansk and Donetsk. Yeah. Right. Okay. So what could we see resulting from this support in the short, medium and long term? Is it uh, simply just North Korean builders moving over and, and, and rebuilding these uh, broken areas? I'm not quite sure. I think that really depends on the course of the war. Uh, maybe if we can see some kind of, some people are saying that in the winter, the war will kind of uh, take a take a pause, and and um, maybe at that time North Korea will feel more comfortable sending some of the uh, workers who are still in Russia to those regions. But so far, we haven't seen uh, any North Koreans deployed. Uh, in 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 those areas yet. Yeah. Now, 
I've heard some loose talk uh, outside of NK News that we might actually see some North Korean soldiers or military supplies being put on the front lines in this war to assure uh, Putin's failing army. Have you seen any signs or heard any talk about that at this stage? Well, we have, again, we haven't seen any North Korean spy in, in, in Ukraine. Um, we also haven't seen North Korean weapons deployed in Ukraine, although researchers connected to the intelligence communities say that North Korea has already supplied Russia with at least, you know, conventional artillery shells. We're not talking about advanced weapon system. We're talking yeah. about mortar shells, that kind of stuff. But uh, so far, I have not seen on the ground reports of people, you know, finding North Korean materials in Ukraine. Mm. So I'm not sure uh, if it actually happened yet. We're, it's, it, reports are very conflicting when it comes to this. North Korea actually has denied sending weapons to Ukraine. So I'm not really sure what is going on, mm -hmm. but uh, within the intelligence community, especially US and UK intelligence, they seem to be quite confident that North Korea is at least in the process of selling these to Russia. Gosh. Uh, Ethan, have you got any details to add or any comment to make on this story? Uh, no, I think I'll just leave this leave this one to Ethan. Um, he's been doing most of the coverage on Russia. Okay. All right. Then, uh, Ethan, we'll turn to you to talk about a, a story that you've written about U.S. government bureaucracy and trying to find out what happened to an American Air Force pilot who was lost, presumed shot down during the Korean War. Could you sketch out the details for us? Sure. So this, this story has uh, essentially been in the making for about 50 years now. Um, and, and in short, uh, there was a Korean War pilot, an American uh, named Harry Cecil Moore, um, and he had been declared dead three times by the U.S. government. Uh, once in 1944, when he was shot down over Kunming, China, during World War II, yeah. uh, he survived in the mountainside for for something like two months, um, just sort of uh, roughing it in the forest. Eventually, uh, taken in by Chinese forces, who then returned him to the Americans. Um, and on the same day that he returned to to U.S. forces. The government had just sent a telegram to his wife saying that he was presumed dead. Um, he then got home and or he got back to, to base and sent a telegram saying, no, actually, I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> so, of my death have been much exaggerated. Right, right, exactly. Uh, so that was only the first time. The second time uh, was at the early stages of the Korean War. Uh, he re-enlisted to fight in that conflict and the Air Force sort of inexplicably sent a telegram again to his wife saying that he had died and it was purely erroneous. Uh, there was really no explanation for it. Um, and they had to issue a correction almost immediately and say, oh, wait, sorry, that previous telegram was a mistake. He hasn't even actually flown today. Um, so not really sure what happened there. And then in, uh, I think, 1954, yeah. during the Korean War, he was... Uh, Actually, she was technically after the armistice. Or, or sorry, uh, well, I'm 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 going to have to to uh, leave out the date then. But it was a few years after the first time he was, or the second time he was presumed dead. Right. He actually he actually was shot down uh, near present day Tandong, China, right. um, in a region called Mig Alley, which was named right. after the uh, the Soviet fighter jets uh, that were known for patrolling that area. And this time, uh, he had a very soft landing in the Yellow Sea, mm. uh, just about 100 meters off the coast. 
and he was presumed dead, and that was sort of the end of it. But 50 years later, his wife was still alive, and she had actually married Harry's brother named uh, Robert in the meantime. And I believe in 2002, they received a letter from the U.S. government saying that new information had come to light, and he might have actually survived that downing the third time. And what essentially followed was the government not being able to get its story straight. Um, They first said that he there was reason to believe he had survived. Uh, Then records were found in Soviet archives that showed that uh, several Soviet pilots and colonels had actually interviewed someone with the same name around the exact same time who was Mm. captured after engaging MiGs uh, in the area. So the and, Soviets may have had. Yes, the Soviets essentially said um, we had someone with the exact same name mm-hmm. who was transferred to an Air Force uh, Academy in oh. Moscow, or at least near Moscow, I believe. Um, and basically what happened to him after that is a mystery. Mm-hmm. And so the, the family of Harry Moore is still fighting the U.S. government to this day yeah. um, to basically declassify a range of documents that the CIA has about what happened to Harry Moore. Ah, so the CIA knows something, but it's still classified. Yes, and the tricky the tricky part is, is that the CIA has yeah. essentially told the family that the information about Harry Moore is still being used. It's still oh. operational, um, which wow. is a surprise. Is a surprise to everyone because he was presumably shot down 70 years ago at this point. Um, And so how in the world could the information still be in operation? Um, And so the family of Harry Moore has claimed that they found two whistleblowers within the CIA who say that, no, this information is not operational. Mm. Um, So they're actually suing the federal government to release that information. So it sounds a little bit like a, a bureaucratic snafu. Um, we're talking about, uh, apart from the CIA, there's this organization, uh, this government office you mentioned in your report that when they received, the, when the, uh, the Moore family received the letter in the early 2000s was called the Defense Prisoner of War slash Missing Personnel Office, the DPMO. And then before that, it had another name of the Joint POW slash MIA Accounting Command. And then later on, it morphed into the Defense POW slash MIA accounting agency. It's hard to keep track of all these names. It it almost sounds like it's hard for the people in those in that organization to keep track of their own paperwork. Right. And that's a big part of this story, too. And just for the sake of simplicity, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, it has many names. So I'm just yeah. going to call it <laughs> I'm just going to call it the DPAA, which is its its current name. OK, um, but the reason it had so many name changes is because uh, in the early 2000s, I believe, Um, reports started to surface that this organization was deeply uh, inept and in some cases actually corrupt. Um, So the the purpose of the organization is to, of course, locate the remains of uh, Americans who died overseas in foreign conflicts. But what was happening was uh, the organization was sending teams of, you know, archaeologists or, you know, scientists and military officers on these essentially boondoggles um, and taxpayer-funded vacations in, you know, lush uh, European destinations 
not exactly right. the, the mountains of, of North Korea per se. Yeah. And so reports came out, uh, an internal audit was conducted by the organization, and it actually admitted to itself, inter- at least internally, mm-hmm. that it was so inept that it was essentially dysfunctional, was yeah. I, the exact wording that the uh, the report used. Now, when that report was leaked to the media, the higher ups at the organization or at the, the bureau essentially uh, tried to kill it, tried to to uh, downplay the rumors, call them controversial, mm. um, et cetera. And so this organization has really struggled. And that sort of continues to this day, because even though it's been renamed multiple times, from what I understand and from what reports suggest, uh, the main person, the, the personnel at the organization have essentially not changed. Um, and wow. it was, uh, I believe, over $100 million per year um, to wow. conduct conduct its work. Now, at the same time, you have private individuals and mm-hmm. organizations that are able to track down dozens of remains per year mm. uh, for a fraction of that, while this government organization is, is you know, blowing tons of taxpayer money to essentially do very, very little. Now, going back to, uh, to, the, to the origins of the story, the, the Soviet Union wasn't at least didn't admit to being involved in the Korean War, although we later know that uh, Soviet pilots were actually flying in North Korean uniforms, uh, pretending to be North Korean pilots. What have we learned from Soviet archives about uh, American POWs from the Korean War? Right. So Harry Cecil Moore is just one of the many Americans who uh, are now believed that they actually wound up in one way or another in the Soviet Union after fighting in the Korean War. Um, So whenever uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the new uh, government came in and decided to essentially share old Soviet archives with the U.S. government. The, a joint task force of Russian and American researchers uh, essentially went through all of the archives and found there was uh, credible evidence that several Americans, I can't remember the exact figure off the top mm. of my head, um, that had more than likely been transferred to the Soviet Union. Uh, there were interviews conducted with Soviet pilots and military officials from the time uh, that corroborated those uh, those records as well. Um, and so it's sort of turned into a question of how many Americans were actually taken to the Soviet Union and why is it that the U.S. government has been um, so reluctant in some cases yeah. to admit to this, even though the Soviets themselves actually have admitted to it. Um, so, yeah, that sort of remains an open question. And now uh, I understand it's, it's, there's a documentary coming out about specifically this man, Harry Cecil Moore. Could you tell us very briefly about that, please? Uh, sure. Sorry. Real quick. Yifang, did you have something to add? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So the documentary that you mentioned, it actually came out uh, several years ago, um, but it was funded by the family, mm-hmm. uh, Robert and Lois. Um, and Robert is, is still alive. He's now 96 years old. His wife wow. uh, passed away a few years ago, but he told me, that they funded their lawsuit against the government uh, by themselves independently, as well as this documentary. Um, and I believe about half of the documentary is available on YouTube mm. um, for free. And yeah, they essentially documented everything that that I've said here, minus some of the more recent developments that happened earlier this year. Does the family have any hope at all of learning the details of, of what happened to uh, their lost uh, brother or husband? Well, it's, I mean, as you, as you know, it's a, uh, 
it's a lawsuit against uh, federal agencies. So it could be many, many years before they even reply <laughs> or make any substantial progress there. Um, but Robert uh, himself is is not necessarily super optimistic that he'll get to see the end of this uh, the end of this case. Okay. But that being said, um, from what I understand, his his daughter and his granddaughter are very much interested in seeing this thing all the way through to the end. Yeah. Um, and hopefully uh, the family can find some peace of mind yeah. when that case finally concludes. Okay, wow. Well, thank you very much for that, Ethan. Uh, James, back to you now. Uh, if mainland China were to move militarily on Taiwan tomorrow, uh, and if the US were to decide to intervene to repel an invasion by Beijing, would US military assets in South Korea, for example, Air Force airplanes, automatically get involved? And if so, would they require South Korean consent to travel through Korean airspace to do so? Well, you know, it's interesting, Jacko, because um, the the kind of crisis that was uh, created when, um, uh, well, when, I, I shouldn't phrase it like that, perhaps, when Nancy Pelosi um, visited Asia, of mm. course, um, China uh, reacted quite strongly and conducted a lot of military exercises. And around that time, uh, a, a U.S. recon plane, a USFK, U.S. Forces Korea recon plane, took off from the um, peninsula to the Taiwan Strait. So that does show that even though it's U.S. Forces Korea, um, there is some kind of role mm. um, for USFK in the region more broadly. South Korea is very, very, very sensitive to this, and mm -hmm. it always maintains that um, if the USFK uh, does want to have some kind of other role in outside of the Korean Peninsula, then that should be established through close discussion yeah. with Seoul. What's the current USFK commander said about the issue? So, I mean, not not too much, but he he has said some things. So, for example, ahead of his confirmation in a, in May 2021, Paul Lacamara, um, who is the commander of USFK, um, he said that you know even though the alliance should remain focused on North Korea, he said that uh, you know that. That the alliance is always constantly evolving and we should be, you know, flexible and adapt to threats that emerge in the region more broadly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the previous USFK commander as well, Robert Abrams, um, also was uh, a big advocate of the allies addressing the threats from China in um, when they make new operational war plans so it seems like this this thing that is happening behind the scenes more than in public because it is such a sensitive issue for south korea yeah of course um south korea's main military partner is the us but its main economic partner mm. is china and um that kind of cre creates um some difficult decisions for for south korea it needs the us presence to um, balance against the um, threats from North Korea, but at the same time, China sees that as a potential threat against itself. And of course, we remember um, around 2017 when South Korea deployed the um, the THAAD, the American uh, missile 
defense system, China reacted really, really strongly to that because it didn't like uh, how, you know, Thad's radar could supposedly weaken China's own deterrent. And so, so therefore, um, South, uh, China did a lot of, did e economically boycotted South Korea, did billions of do dollars of damage to the economy. So, you know, fast forward back to today, again, I think South Korea's cautious, very, very cautious about announcing some grand role for USFK in Taiwan, because it doesn't want to anger China. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly an issue where the uh, the public messaging uh, needs to be very, very carefully crafted by all sides, but especially by South Korea. Uh, thanks very much for that one, James. Uh, now, we've we've almost run out of time here. Ethan, I'm apologizing to you because I, I wanted to spend a bit more time on your uh, third story about the uh, the space radar. I've got, I'm going to give you about a minute just to summarize what it is and why it's important, because it is a very interesting story over at NK Pro for our NK Pro subscribers. Go ahead, Ethan. Sure. So long story short, the way that we've been tracking vessels for many years now is by looking at something called the automatic identification system. Mm. And that's essentially a set of radio transponders that most ships over a certain size are required to carry on board and broadcast their location essentially all the time. Now, the purpose of this system is to avoid collisions at sea, but it can also be used to track say, North Korean vessels engaging in suspicious activities. Yep. Now, while this isn't a, a problem to use AIS for pretty much every other country in the world, um, if you're a North Korean smuggler and you want to hide your location, the easiest thing to do is simply turn off your AIS transponder. Mm. Um, and so we see this type of behavior quite a bit. And this has been the main shortcoming of using AIS. So the, perp the the focus of this space radar story is essentially that there may be emerging a new way of tracking these vessels engaging in suspicious activity ah. with something called synthetic aperture radar, which is essentially, instead of using optical light, so taking um, uh, you know pictures from space uh, or using AIS broadcasts, you can essentially beam radio waves down to the Earth's surface. Mm -hmm. And then once they reflect back to the satellite, that image, can, it can be essentially uh, imaged in the same way that like a bat uses echolocation. Yeah. And uh, this type of, the reason that this is more powerful than optical imagery is because the particular wavelengths used by these satellites and this, this imagery method can pierce through clouds. Oh. It, does, it also doesn't need to operate during the day. Um, so obviously satellite images taken at night are pretty much uh, useless if they're using optical light, but synthetic aperture radar, uh, it's clear as day in a sense, day or night. Um, it can even be used to peer underground um, or underneath yeah, dense canopies, et cetera. So it's a very powerful tool. Now, the main problem with it uh, is that the resolution is very low. Um, and so the data, when you when it's visualized for humans, is essentially unintelligible or very difficult to use. So um, I know I'm going over your your time limit, Jocko, but I'll yes, speed yes, up here. But go on. Uh, so essentially, uh, what has happened is that there's been advancements in machine learning in recent uh, years, and uh, an organization called Global Fishing Watch, which monitors illegal fishing around the world, mm. hosted this competition where they asked machine learning engineers to design a model or machine learning model that can pick apart this very low resolution 
SAR, synthetic aperture radar data, yeah. and see what is basically pick out what is a ship and what is just water. Um, and the, the better that these algorithms get, the faster they can detect ships yeah. um, and they can do it at any time of the day, as long as the satellite has actually gone by overhead. Um, and so the hope is that one day, instead of having to rely on AIS transmissions, we can essentially see every ship all the time mm. with these uh, this application of artificial intelligence against this very unique type of satellite imagery. And that's important in the North Korean context because of uh, uh, potential uh, illegal sanctions busting, ship-to-ship uh, -ship transfers of oil and coal and things like that. That's that's why we're looking at this, isn't it, Ethan? That's right. And good reason for hope is that the the man who actually won the latest competition mm. uh, is. Ukrainian uh, machine learning engineer, he told me that his algorithm is good enough to detect ship-to-ship -ship transfers between fishing boats that are as small as 20 meters uh, in length. Now, most ships conducting ship-to-ship -ship transfers are much longer than 20 meters. They're usually around 80 to 100 meters. Um, and so when I asked if this could be applied to, say, oil tankers, he said, yes, it could. Um, and already, there's a code in place that can actually distinguish the type of vessel even, even though that the pixels are so blurry to our eyes, mm. the machine learning algorithm is so good that it can even classify vessels in near real time. Wow. So this is the hope is that this is going to become a powerful new tool for sanctions monitors, uh, such as the uh, UN panel of experts. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much for a good summary there. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Ethan Jewell, Ethan Bremer, and James Fretwell for joining me on the podcast today. We'll talk to some of you again next month. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business, or academic institution, check out NK Pro, our NK Pro platform. We talked about two stories on there today with Ethan Jewell. Offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can acquire, acquire about access and a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Uh, thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dev for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, etc. Thank you very much and listen to us again next time. Mm -hmm.